Welcome to the Maximus Podcast with your hosts, Joe Sabula and Bobby Maximus. Today, we are joined uh, with a personal friend, uh, one of the planet's best chefs, uh, an avid fitness human being. Uh, also, you know, shares a love of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, David Nafeld. Dave, how are you? Doing very well. Thank you so much for having me, guys. No, you're what you're, you know, you're, uh, you're welcome. Listen, I've been a big fan of you for a long time. Uh, it's no secret that like, if you follow me publicly, uh, you know, two of my great loves are fitness and food and you really check both those boxes. So we've got some serious stuff to talk about here a little bit, but the first thing that I want to talk about is what led you into fitness? Because I don't generally equate being a chef with being that fit. So like what got you going down that road? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because that's actually something actively I'm trying to change, right? Because, you know, I am one of the beneficiaries of the generation of chefs that came from the Anthony Bourdain generation, right? And any people out there who, um, you know, are not, familiar with kind of how Anthony Bourdain got really his, you know, rocket ship to stardom. It was through this book called Kitchen Confidential. And so Kitchen Confidential basically were, was this book that um, really just, uh, you know, showed the underbelly of our industry and painted it in a way that made chefs feel like pirates slash rock stars. And everything was about living life to excess. It was about drinking every day, doing drugs, partying, um, you know, being this kind of persona that was on 24 seven, that uh, practiced little to no self-care. It was all about martyrism in the, in the restaurant. It was about like working until you collapsed. It was about dying at your stove. It was about, you know, living life in this way that, you know, honestly, it just cannot be sustained by anyone. And so I am a direct descendant of that generation of cooks. And personally, that's how I really kind of quantified my worth in social circles, right? I would meet people who were in other industries, like they were in finance, they were in tech, they were in business and they would be like, Oh my God, you're a chef. That's so awesome. You must go out to drink every night. You're so interesting. You're so fun. You're constantly in some sort of scene. Um, you know, you're, you guys are going, you know, going nuts at work and all this, you know, all this stuff. Right. And it feeds your ego for a long, long time. And what I personally noticed is that the higher my status was getting in the restaurant industry and socially, the lower my status was getting in personal relationships, uh, the lower I was feeling from a self-esteem standpoint, I was fat, I was out of shape. Um, I did not feel like someone who had full control over my emotions, over my life, over my body. And I hit rock bottom. I think, you know, I'm, I'm about five eleven. I gained, I got up to about 220 pounds of, um, you know, like pretty flabby. And, um, you know, this, I'm, I'm someone that I think for my frame walks around kind of comfortably around 190. So at 220, I felt really 
out of shape, winded. And then beyond that, I was like super irritable all the time. I was very easy to set off. I had no control over my emotions and over how I managed people, how I spoke to people, my personal relationships at home. And I think at one point I just recognized like, I have this persona of who I'm trying to be, who I'm showing off that I am, but really I'm not because I'm not a strong person emotionally. I'm not a strong person mentally, and I'm certainly not a strong person physically. And the first step for me was exercise. That was the first thing. And then I would say that journey for me started probably in 2008. And through that journey, I, found all these failures because I was trying to go a hundred miles an hour in one direction. So hundred miles an hour in working out. Well, okay. That was dope. I lost 30 pounds, but then I did zero stretching. I did zero taking care of myself. I did zero recovery. And I also didn't know what eating right meant, right? Like to me, eating right was just like, Hey, like I'm cutting out McDonald's, no more diet drinks, no more, um, you know, but for me, I was like, well, I mean, drinking at night alcohol, like that's not a problem, right? Like a ton of that to excess. Um, you know, there was all these things. I just didn't know what the balance was and through, you know, let's say I lost a bunch of weight and I felt physically fit. I wasn't doing any emotional therapy right? I wasn't going to a therapist. Let's say I would be working out super hard and I would hurt my back because I didn't know how to take care of myself. I didn't know sauna. I didn't know ice. I didn't know stretching. I didn't know any of those things. And through 2008 to, I would say now I have come to believe that, you know, you are never, ever going to get a, a day. If you're a highly ambitious person, the, the way I think all of us are on this call, you are never going to get a day where you hit everything at hundred percent. It's just not a thing because in 24 hours a day, you cannot get enough sleep, enough training, enough jujitsu, enough weightlifting, enough stretching, enough family time, enough ambitious career time. And so what I started recognizing is it's not about getting it all done in a day. It's about how do you balance the time within your life? And whether it's a week or a month or a year, how do you balance it all out? So it's like, Hey, you know what? Maybe today I was deficient in my stretching. So tomorrow I'm going to stretch more. Hey, maybe today I took a break from weight lifting because I was a little tired. Okay. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get better sleep tonight and I'm going to make sure that my diet is on point and I'm eating something that makes me feel good. And so I would say what I, where it brought me to today, and I would not say that I'm anywhere near um, a fitness professional or expert, but I do think I have a better understanding of the way my body works when I'm trying to optimize it. And would you say then that you're happy with the balance that you have right now? Are no, you no, 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 absolutely not. I'm never, I'm never happy. I would say, I would say, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly dissatisfied because I wish I had more time for jujitsu but like in a pandemic, it's like, well, it's cool that we're training these few weeks and then next few weeks, maybe, maybe it's less cool. Um, or, Hey, like I'm a super ambitious person. I'm trying to build restaurants. I'm trying to build businesses. I'm trying to write a book. I'm trying to do a podcast. Maybe I just didn't make time for that. Right. Or maybe I didn't make enough time for, um, you know, uh, my therapy. Um, what I would say is no, I'm not satisfied. I wish 
I, you know, and, and the, here's one other thing I would say, one of my major deficiencies, one of my major weaknesses is I've noticed that I train significantly better in a group when I'm by myself, I don't train as well, no matter how mentally I get prepared, how I try to psych myself up. I'll like write mottos on my, on my like dry race board, like stop being a bitch or whatever, <laughs> um, you know, and, 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 and I'll psych myself up and I'll get something in, but it's never as good as when me and my, you know, three training partners are in a fucking room together, looking at each other. Like you can't give up on me right now, man. I like keep going. Right. And so I would say I'm not satisfied. I, I like that approach though. I don't think you should be satisfied. Right. It's like, uh, it, I'm the same. I'm, I, I've been accused of going at life like a linebacker. Like I want to get into jujitsu. It takes most people 10 years to get their black belt. I want to do it in six months. You know what I mean? And it's like, you, you can't, because like you said, there's, there's other factors outside of that. If I could give everything else up and just focus on that one thing, then maybe, yeah, I could accelerate that process. But the reality is I have to manage the resources that I have. And, and one of those resources is my body. My body can't take the damage that it could take when I was in my twenties. You know, my liver can't drink the way that I drank when I was in college kind of a thing. And, and, and that's a constantly changing thing. And I think if you get to a point where you're like, yes, I'm satisfied. Well, then it's time to die. You know, like if everything is at that point, like you won the game of life, congratulations, you're done. But this, this actually is a good segue into what I'm really interested in talking to you about is specifically the restaurant industry in a time when some of the resources that you normally have to manage are suddenly swept away because there's that factor outside of what you have immediately, you know, immediate control over that's telling you, you've got to shut your doors. That's telling you, you know, there's a social responsibility that you need to uphold and you need to limit what you're doing as a business person. And that's obviously incredibly frustrating. I mean, I felt that as a personal trainer, right? The gym got shut down. Like, what are we supposed to do? How do we adapt to this? So talk a little bit about where you were uh, right before this pandemic had hit and then how things have kind of evolved since then. Yeah. So uh, look, before I get into all that, I, I have developed a motto for myself, which is control the things you can control and always remember that your ability is your availability. Right. And so for me, it's about showing up every day and putting your effort behind something. Now, uh, 22 months ago, you know, our restaurants were crushing it. Uh, we were doing incredibly well. We were about to sign contracts for multiple other venues. We were looking to expand to other states, um, you know, and everything changed. And, you know, over the past 20, you know, two months, I would say that, you know, my least favorite word has become pivot. The idea of pivot. How many times can you pivot? And the truth is, you know, you do what you can do while you can do it to survive. And the second that you don't want to do it, right. It's not about can't, it's about don't want. If you don't want to keep fighting the fight, then you stop fighting the fight. For me, I wasn't built to stop fighting fights, right? Like I, I can fucking work myself into a lather about like certain shit. And I'm just like, man, you, you are not getting me off of this thing. That's why I didn't give up on a restaurant that took me four years to build four years throughout that entire time. People were telling me, dude, like there are so much easier paths, but in my mind, I knew that that was the place. That was the space. That was where my dream was. And I didn't want an easier path. I wanted that. And so this industry is a tough one, right? Like, but guess what? 
if it wasn't tough, it wouldn't be interesting. Nobody would care about it, right? Like it wouldn't be something that people were excited about. Anything easy is very seldom that interesting or very seldom that good um, because then everybody would do it. It's the same thing as what you guys do for a living. If it was, you know, if it was easy to do, you know, uh, then, then, you know, it, it would just not be worth it to be honest. Now that brings me to, you know, today, like we don't have the resources that we're supposed to have. We've been fighting for independent restaurants everywhere. I'm a part of a group that started, um, in March of 2020 as a, um, response to the pandemic, which is called the independent restaurant coalition. And we've been fighting nonstop for small businesses, specifically independent restaurants, bars, cafes, things like that, food trucks. And we succeeded partially in our goal, which was to get what we were calling at that point, the restaurant act passed and the restaurant act. We were asking for $120 billion. And that is a drop in the bucket of what government has spent. Um, government has sent money and wasted money in ways that I cannot even begin to describe yet to save small business, they were only able to belly up $28 billion. Now I know to anyone that's listening to this, they're going to say $28 billion. That sounds like a lot of money. Well, in terms of who signed up for this restaurant uh, uh, act, which now is called the restaurant revitalization fund, 300,000 restaurants signed up for this. And that was only enough money to pay a hundred thousand of those restaurants. So now we're at a place where 177,000, no, sorry, 200,000 of those restaurants are still kind of floating in the wind. And we're, we've been fighting to get Congress to refill that. And so that's, you know, really what I fill my days with is, you know, if, if I can't control how my restaurant is doing right this second, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to control my effort and fighting for myself and other people in the industry and being a voice for, for, for people who don't know how to be a voice for themselves, right? Like I grew up going to mom and pop Chinese restaurants, mom and pop Japanese restaurants, mom and pop Mexican restaurants. And if you go to a lot of these folks, they have no idea on what it means to advocate for yourself, right? Like for them, they're like, look, you know, I, I show up to work. I do my like best to stay open. I employ people. I work hard. And for them, that's, that's what they know, right? They don't realize there's, you know, there's an underbelly in this country, which is about lobbying, right? Lobbying and everything in, in DC is about lobbying. And it's why anything gets done. It's why schools get closed. It's why someone gets money. It's why legislation gets written. It is not about you or your vote. Honestly, it's not. It is about lobbyists and who is the loudest person in the room. And so for us, that's the kind of nasty truth that we've learned as small businesses is nobody's been lobbying on our behalf. Nobody's been fighting on our behalf. And that means that we have ultimately been frozen out of all of these issues. Every piece of legislation that has to do with restaurants gets written for the Olive Gardens and the McDonald's of the world. And none of them get written for the little guy. And so what we're doing at the independent restaurant coalition is making sure that the little guy has a voice in the room and we're a fucking mighty voice, right? Like we're in there and we're fighting the fight now beyond that, right? Like what can I put my effort into? I can put my effort into myself. I could put my effort into my daughter. I could put my effort into creative works like my podcast. Um, I could put effort into all sorts of things. And I think that the key to remember in life is that Life is not meant to be easy. 
life is not meant to kind of hand you anything. Um, when one kind of path that you're going on stops existing or stops being obvious, keep fucking going. You know, Winston Churchill had a saying, which is when you're going through hell, just keep going. Right. And it's all about recognizing that the path forward is forward and it may not be straight, but it is forward. I want to go back to, to what you were saying about Anthony Bourdain. Right. And that that whole generation of rock star chefs and this idea of uh, of I, I think you use the word almost like this pirate idea of like you're 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 in this industry and your attitude is a huge part of who, who and what you are. And I think at his time. That did mean that you were out being a superstar. You you were out being the rock star kind of a, a, a person living that that socialite life. So I hear you are in there and you realize I'm kind of just like everybody else now. Like that's everybody wanted that. That's what everybody sort of expected. And there's a cost associated with that, which was your health, your sanity. And so being a rock star, you're like, I'm going to flip the switch. I'm going to put the script on its head and I'm going to go off in my own direction and do this my own way. And you saw success with that. And now here you are running this restaurant and you've already had that experience behind you and the whole world shifts under all of our feet. And it's frustrating. And like you said, as a, as a business person, you're like, okay, what can I do at my restaurant to help deal with things? Again, you have the, the pressure of being socially responsible. You have the, the pressure of a governor telling you, you got to shut your doors down for a while. Um, restrictions about, you know, when you can be open, if you can be open, what that looks like when you're open. Can you do curbside? Can you do online orders? Are people happy? Like trying to figure the business end of that out is frustrating enough. And you realize in that moment, there's a, a sense of almost like overwhelmness of, of almost powerlessness as, as hard as you can fight for all of that stuff. There's this whole bigger thing. There's a, there's a much larger monster that needs to be taken on. And I feel in my heart, just coming from the, the fitness background from the personal training background, like if I look at what needs to change at a congressional level, that is a really, really uphill battle. That is a, a hard thing for, like you said, a small independent mom, mom and pa shop that really doesn't even know how that game is played to, to go become that. So I'm a little bit in awe that you have such this, this tick, this little thing that just says, I don't care about how big the monster is. I want to get out there and, and actually, like you said, be a voice in the room. You don't have to be the biggest voice in the room. Because it is impossible to to compete with, you know, the 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 size of some of these mega restaurants and and the the concerns that they have, and the influence that they already have. Where did you start with this process? Was it was it just one man on his own, or was there already some structure in place that you were able to get involved with to help propel you into that battle? Yeah, so that's a really good question. You know, for. Um... <sighs> So I'll, I'll answer the last part of your question first. And so the last part of your question is, you know, was there something there? No, we, we literally grew within a moment's notice. Uh, March of 2020, everyone had to shut their restaurants down. We all went from working 70 to 90 hour weeks and being consumed with our restaurants. and all of a sudden that was taken from us and everyone was completely just unsure about what to do with themselves and what to do with their lives and with their livelihoods and their businesses and with their employees and, and all of these things. And we all got together um, within, I think 
a, a couple days on a Zoom call. And at first the Zoom call was really acting almost as a support group of like, what are you doing? What should we do? And what grew from that, the Independent Restaurant Coalition was a group of people who knew that, you know, we may be independent, but we're not alone. And that we have a lot of people and we have a lot of other businesses, restaurants, entities out there that we connect with in so many other ways. And when asked to kind of jump to the call of, let's say, any other major event, like, so for example, anytime there's a major disaster, you have your frontline workers who are out there putting out fires, saving people from uh, drowning, you know, picking people out of rubble. But then you have right behind them, you have chefs, you have restaurateurs, you have people setting up food for those people, right? Mm -hmm. Because you need food. You need food to survive. And so I may not refer to us as first responders, but I think we're second responders. We're the people who come in and make sure that everyone gets fed. We're always donating food. We're always fighting for a cause. Every chef in America is fighting for a cause, right? Uh, I, I would be willing to venture as any chef that you guys know on Instagram, anywhere else, anybody you see on TV, you can find a cause that they're associated with, whether it's Meals on Wheels, whether it's, um, you know, uh, getting funding for, um, you know, underprivileged kids, whether it's uh, ASPCA, like whatever it is, I guarantee you we are all connected to something. And we are all used to being asked to be the first to jump into other causes. And now we have this cause, which is truly existential to us. And we had this opportunity to kind of gather together and galvanize our industry and speak our own, our, on our own behalf. Now, something you were talking about before this, right. Was like, to me, what it brought my mind to is the story of Sisyphus. Right. And so anyone who knows the story of kind of like the constant pushing of a boulder up a hill and the hill never stops. Now, I think the majority of chefs are built that way. We are built in a way that we understand that our life is about pushing a boulder up a hill and the hill never, you never get to the top of the hill. Um, and for us, oftentimes the way that our careers end is you kind of give in to the kind of boulder, the crushing pressure, and you just let it roll over you and, and, and that's it, right? And you go out in kind of like a blaze of glory. And bringing us back to, you know, what Bobby was talking about earlier in terms of how my life changed and how I kind of found my way to fitness and, and, and health and, and, and a more sustainable lifestyle is I started recognizing that, you know, I don't want to be a martyr for this industry. What I want is I want to be a well-regarded chef, a well-regarded businessman, a well-regarded member of my community. But those things honestly come second and third to me being an amazing dad, to me being an amazing human being, um, being a charitable human being and caring about other people and being good in a relationship, whether that relationship is with my girlfriend, whether that relationship is with my parents, whether that relationship is with my friends. And I started recognizing that those things 
those relationships are what fuel me and continue to fuel me to push in those other directions. So let me ask you a, a clarification question because I there's something I'm interested in. You seem like you're in this fight for the long haul. You don't want to give in. You have your dream. One of the things that's bothered me with the way the United States has handled COVID as a whole is the rules are very different in Utah than they are in California. And so in Utah, some of my favorite restaurants have flourished because we don't shut down. Now, that would be even truer if you were in Florida. So to draw a jujitsu comparison, you and I are doing jujitsu. You figure out you can't take me down. You have the opportunity to pull guard. Not a pivot. It's just a strategy. At what point do you pack up and say bye-bye to California? Do you move? Is that an option? Have you thought about that to somewhere where you can do your thing without the restriction? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, in short, yeah, we thought about it and we've looked at other deals. I was looking all up and down Texas and and things like that. And so to answer your question, um, you know, there's multiple parts of your question that I want to hit on. I just want to touch on a few things. Now, we they might not be shutting restaurants down in Utah and Texas and Florida, but I will tell you what's happening is the impact of the policies and the way we've kind of dealt with this and how important our industry is nationally. You are now seeing massive issues nationwide from Maine to Seattle, from Montana to Texas in supply chain issues staffing shortages. Those are not things that are specific to California. Now, why is that? It was because when you paused our industry for as long as you did, a lot of these supply chains collapsed. Then you saw a lot of people flee to other industries to, um, you know, staying at home with their parents, going back to school, doing a lot of stuff. And the fact of the matter is, you know, the country could have dealt with this in a different way in the sense of who they were incentivizing to stay open. They decided to go a route which kind of disincentivized a lot of people from going back to work. Now, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because there's a lot of nuance there that I don't think we have the time to discuss. But the quick answer is yes, we've thought about it. My new perspective for now is that California can be fixed. We can make it a better place to do business. We can make it a better place to live. The way to do that is not to escape to Texas. Mm. Um, it's not to escape to Utah. It's not to escape to Idaho. And frankly, I mean, I'm sure most people who live in Utah, Montana, Idaho, Texas, the place where Californians are going, they're telling those people, don't come here and make it San Francisco because we don't want that. Right. And I think the interesting thing is what if we were to rethink what it is to be a Californian? What would it be if we were to rethink what it is like to do business in California and who do we put in power here? Right. And so I've decided that for now, my efforts are better spent doing those things. Now, does that mean I'll never consider opening, you know, places in Utah and, and, and a lot of those aforementioned places. No, I, I will. 
like any smart businessman, like any smart person, I will constantly keep my options open. I will constantly be looking at um, how, how the situation progresses. But as of right now, what I'm seeing in California is that my life is here. My daughter is here. My family is here. And so I don't want to live a life away from those people. Now, what I, I think I'm better spent my, you know, better off spending my time on is impacting change here. Now it's, you know, still remains to be seen whether that can be achieved, but look, I, we've been fighting this fight for 22 months here in San Francisco and already we've passed major legislation. When I opened my restaurant, it took us four years to do. And about 18 months of that was because our, um, our project was at the planning department and it took them 18 months to get through within the past two years. We've, uh, passed a proposition here, which was called prop H and it now mandates that the planning department has 30 days, 30 days to get businesses back their plans so they can go. That in itself is going to help thousands and thousands of small business owners moving forward. Now we've done a lot of other things and there's still way more to do. And then at a state level, there's way more to do, but I do think things can happen. People just need to stop being like apathetic to a scenario and saying that they can't change anything because I'll tell you something when the teacher's union wants to change something. Oh, they, they change it. It's because they all show up. Right. And when someone says we strike, they strike. Now, small business owners could do the same thing. We just all need to get together and show that level of commitment. All right. I got a now, three. I have a three part question for you. What does success look like for this organization? What does success look like for your business? And what does success look like for you as a person in all of this? Yeah, great question. I'll try and just knock those out succinctly. Right. Uh, success, first and foremost, at the Independent Restaurant Coalition is for us to get the restaurant revitalization fund passed, right? That needs to happen so that we can save our industry. We can put basically our industry, which is like a ship, which is leaning over and taking on water. We need to get us right side up, right? That is the first most important thing. Beyond that, we have a lot of different things that we want to achieve that we think could be great for the industry. Those are all things that need to get agreed on by committee. And I think that those things could be really excellent in a lot of different ways, but I am not going to lose focus on the one single thing that we need because anything else besides getting the restaurant revitalization fund passed is like being in a car that's on fire and stopping to check the air in the tires, right? It's just like, yeah. it, it, it doesn't make sense right now. What does success look for my businesses? Um, success for my businesses is that we get reopened fully. We pay people great wages and employ a lot of people in a job that gives them upward mobility. We pay our investors back quickly. And then we turn a profit for all of our partners for the entirety of our leases. Right. And that we continue that model for me personally, what does success look like? It's a number of things. First and foremost, success for me is about being a great father. 
that is the one thing that I want to measure myself on beyond anything else. I want to be an amazing father. Secondly, success for myself is about having relationships with people that I have impacted in positive ways. And whether that's my parents, whether that's my brother, whether that's my girlfriend, whether that's my dog, my, my neighbor, whatever, I want to be known and remembered as someone who impacted people's lives in a positive way. Third is I want to build wealth for myself. And I think that a lot of people um, shy away from saying that because it's not cool to say, I want wealth. But the truth is my family escaped, uh, you know, the former USSR. Um, it's why I look at places that think communism and socialism as being sexy to me. I, I'm like, <laughs> you must come from a very privileged background if you think that, right? Because I'll tell you that this country is the most amazing country in the world. It's because it gives you the opportunity, right? And, you know, uh, as, to kind of use a phrase that I think football coaches use a lot of times, I heard Nick Saban say this, which is um, everyone will get treated fairly. Not everyone will get treated equally. And it's about the fact that you have the potential to do something here and you have the potential to do something, but outcomes are never guaranteed. Now you take your shot and you do what you can do. But for me, the idea of building wealth from the fact that my parents came here with nothing is something that I think that every kind of first and second generation immigrant thinks about when they think about building something for their family that they can leave for further generations. And ultimately the other part that I look at in terms of success is, did I live a happy life? Right. I do not want to live a life where everything was about like doing what I thought I had to do and never what really satisfied my soul. For me, happiness is about training. It's about being healthy. It's about having being prepared. It's about being like, you know, being able to be a savage if I need to be and, and fight for myself and take care of myself and take care of my family and, and have that ability. Right. And I think that those are the things that make me happy. Those are the things that make me feel good about being alive. And I don't want to live a life of being neutered because that to me is not a successful life. Good answer. Very good answer. And I, I'll say, I, I, I love the immigrant uh, perspective. Everyone I talk to who's a family of immigrants, they, they just tell a different kind of story than what you hear from people who are, you know, born or, or have long lines of history in this country. My perspective has always been the, the best thing about the United States is that it's like the wild, wild west. Like if you're driven and you want to get something done, like you get to go do it. The bad part about the U.S. is that it's like the wild, wild west. It's just kind of crazy. And like if you don't have that drive, you might just get eaten up. Yeah, sure. But listen, <clears throat> I read a thread recently um, by a new, newly naturalized citizen uh, founder of a, of a tech company. Right. And he, he was talking about like the, th you know, 10 years of becoming a citizen. Right. That's like the trajectory. And he did this amazing thread on why he's like, regardless of any negative facts about this place, why it's still the best place in the world. And if you want to measure corruption, right? 
the the idea of someone coming up to a a company owner and saying, "Hey, give me this money right now, or I'll burn your building down, mm-hmm. or you won't show up for work, or I'll pull all of your licenses." Yeah, it's not. It, there's there's a lot of really really fucked up stuff that goes on in this country. The bureaucracy is sickening. There is a ton. I mean, racism. It, it, like to pretend like systematic racism does not play a huge role in a lot of people's lives, um, prejudice, sexism, all this stuff. Right. But that stuff exists in a lot of places, in a lot of places, but the United States gives people the opportunity to rise above that and to get something for the, for themselves and for their clan that I don't think you really get in a lot of other places in the world. I love that perspective because I feel that we've entered a space of just complaining to complain. Everyone's offended. Everyone's woke. Everyone's and listen, I'm the first person to be in line for equal rights, for supporting people who are downtrodden, for, you know, giving everyone like a fair shake, like all that stuff. But it seems that we're living in an era today where everything is just complaint after complaint after complaint. And I want to tell people like, it could get a whole lot worse. You yeah, know what I mean? And you got a of it, but yeah, look, absolutely. I think a lot, everything can get worse. <laughs> like never don't, don't get it twisted. Everything can always get worse. But I think what you're talking about to, you know, to, in a certain, to a certain extent is a generation of, of, of participation trophy holders. Right. And the idea of I showed up, so I should therefore be successful. I, um, I, I exist. So I should get a prize for existing. And the fact is, it's like, you know what? Like that is not the way our country has thrived. It is a major reason why I'm a huge proponent of paths to citizenship. Immigration is one of the things that makes this country one of the best things best places you can be. Why? Because you can go from a place like Mumbai in the, you know, in the slums to here, and you can build like, you can build amazing things for yourself. If you get, look, you got to have some luck. You got to have some opportunities. You got to have some chances, but what you can build for yourself here is incredible. You can come here from a lot of other places. Now, you know, one of the things that I think is important in this entire conversation is I think also the um, kind of era of oversensitivity, over wokeness, whatever you want to call it, it actually has a negative impact on actually meaningful issues. When we talk about racism, it is a real thing. We all know it's a real thing. And if you don't know it, you need to open your fucking eyes, right? Black people in this country have a way harder time of it than white people in this country. And that's just a fact. Women in corporate worlds get it way harder than men in corporate worlds. That's just a fact. But when you say everything is racist, then that makes nothing racist, right? If you say everything is prejudice, it makes nothing prejudice. And when we do this thing where everything is 
offensive. Everything is a problem. Everything, every time you didn't make it to something, it's because somebody was being prejudiced against you. What you ultimately do is you devalue when it is legitimate. And we need to be paying attention to how to fix legitimate grievances. We need to be paying attention to how to give people who have all uh, like uh, historically had um, tougher times and historically been uh, put in worse situations. We need to get them a leg up. And that's not going to be through saying to them in classrooms when there are six, Hey, you know what? Um, you're an oppressor and you're a victim and that's how you live your life. And, and, and basically that's what you need to get used to right now. Do I think the way we teach black history in American schools is even close to enough? No, it's a joke. Like Black History Month and all we talk about is slavery. No, that that is not black history, right? We should have whole curriculums, whole whole semesters about you know, African-American or African history or Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean history and all of this stuff, because we should grow up understanding how such a major part of our population, it, uh, you know, has come to be in the world today and, 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 and a lot of things. And we need to talk about their successes and the excellences and all of that stuff. Right. Uh, I also think the same thing for native American studies and women's studies and, and Mexican studies and, 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 and all of those things. Right. But I mean, I think what we're speaking to is the fact that like our education system in the United States, uh, especially before the university uh, stage is lacking. And and by the way, you talk to anyone who comes from other places, whether it's Canada, uh, Russia, Europe, China, it is a fact that the education systems in those places pre-university is significantly better. You talk to a fifth grader in Canada, they can tell you about geography in a way that a high school student cannot tell you about, right? Yeah. They can talk to you about science in a way that a high school student can't talk to you about. But the second you get to university level here, right? In this country, it far leaps over anything you see in other countries. And that's why you see people from all over the world yeah. coming to study here. Now, I know that this is getting off on a bit of a tangent, but the point that I'm trying to say is that our country has so much potential to continue to be the best place in the world. And it is the best place in the world, but it is not about equal outcomes, right? It's about everyone getting an opportunity and then they have to make the most of their own opportunity. Yeah, and I'll say I, I, I see and I recognize that you, you wholeheartedly believe that because that's what you're fighting for. That's the whole thing. If you didn't think that there was hope here, you would have just like folded up your restaurant and moved on to a different industry. Well, I'll tell you why my industry is so important to me is I think the reason why my industry is worth saving and worth every drop of effort that I put into it is you do not need to graduate from high school to get into my industry and ultimately create wealth for your family. You can come here as not speaking English from Ecuador, start as a dishwasher, become a prep cook, become a butcher, make your way onto the line work your way on the line, become a sous chef, become a chef de cuisine, and then ultimately have something interesting to stay, say in your own creative voice, get a restaurant open or a food truck or a chain of food trucks. And all of a sudden you could potentially get yourself into the middle class and further, right? And what does that mean? That is the most beautiful story I think Americans can tell. And that to me is the American dream. Amen. <laughs> I love it. And David, I just wanted to say personally, uh, as we kind of wrap this up, 
this is one of the things that I love about you. You're you're a chef. Um, I'd even put you, you know, as a higher rank than that. I think you're an artist with how good you are at what you do. But you're not just a chef or an artist. You're a brilliant guy. You're driven. Uh, you care about other people. And it's one of the things that we love um, about beautiful humans in the United States on the Maximus podcast. So thank you for leading by example. And thank you for being you because you're a person we genuinely look up to. No, oh, thank you very much. And I have to say the same to you, Bobby, like, you know, you and I have developed a friendship uh, over a little bit of time and, and I've been following you obviously since, you know, your UFC career. But, you know, for me, what I've really kind of developed a huge amount of admiration for you is the way you message um, health and fitness and the fact that, you know, you can achieve that for yourself, um, you know, in, in any <clears throat> in any circumstance. Right. And it's all about showing up every single day and just putting the work in. And a lot of times you might have amazing workouts and sometimes you're like, hey, I just I put my work in today. And it's it's about just showing up all the time. And I really, really appreciate that from you. Well, thank you. And it's really similar to your restaurant example, because I say this often at seminars and with people, fitness is the one place dad's money won't help you. Yeah. Like everyone, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you have to earn the shit. Like it's just, it's a blank slate. You work hard, you get it. You don't, you don't. It's that simple. Yeah, well, I appreciate you guys having me on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you.